Good morning and welcome to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas. My name is Francis Correa and this morning we'll be talking to Father Anthony Egan who is down at the Grahamstown Festival. He's both down there looking at various things happening at the festival and we talked to him a bit about that but he is also involved in putting on a one-man show. He's doing A Life of Oscar Romero and so we'll talk to him a little bit about his play and about how it has been received and how things are going. And then we will move on to an interview with Father John Baldivan, who is out from America and who is doing the Jesuit Institute's Winter Living Theology program this year all around the country. So he'll be in various centers this year in Johannesburg, Pretoria, Port Elizabeth, Cape Town, Durban and Bloemfontein. And in each of those centers, he'll be presenting both his um, his program over three days. And if you're interested in that, you can write to the Jesuit Institute at admin, dot, uh, admin at jesuitinstitute.org.za. But he'll also be doing short one-day inputs or evening inputs on Saturdays or weekend, on the weekends, and you can also phone in and find out about that. So we'll be talking a little bit about what he's going to be doing, and he's going to be looking at liturgy and social justice and how... Our liturgy is shot through with a sense of justice and a sense of care for the world. We're going to talk now to Father Anthony Egan in Grahamstown. Anthony. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Ah, good. Very good. And how is Grahamstown this morning? Well, it's a little bit cool, but it's not as cold as it has been. Uh, But the weather in Grahamstown is very strange. It varies between being quite warm and then suddenly getting really cold at night. Okay. So, yeah, but the atmosphere is good. Wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about how the festival's going? Just give us a sense of the feeling of the Grahamstown Festival this year. What's... Um, the festival, well, I think there are a number of things are happening. I mean, there are some very successful, I think, very good plays and things and very good musical presentations going on. Um there's maybe not as many people there as, as perhaps in previous years. I think that's probably the economic downturn, which is very sad. But still, I think the atmosphere is very good. Wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing down at the festival this year? Well, I'm doing this one-man play called Romero. It's about Archbishop Romero. Um, I'm doing it in, uh, interestingly enough, a Methodist hall, Church Hall, uh, and uh, we'll be getting quite an interesting mix of people uh, from from basically from Catholic and non-Catholic alike who come to see the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the play itself, I mean, it's, a, it's about an hour long, and essentially it tries to tell the story of Romero through the character himself, and it's literally sandwiched between the, the famous sermon on the Sunday Morning, when he basically tells the army to stop the repression and his assassination uh, in the hospital chapel right. on the 24th of March 1980. And what basically happens is that it creates the impression of a press conference where a group of journalists have come to listen to him and he exp- explains to them why he's doing what he's doing. Okay. I was thinking, Anthony, given what's going on in South Africa in the moment, if you think there are any of uh, Romero's insights into life, into justice, into into 
following Christ that seem to be appropriate to us in the situation in which we find ourselves now? Yeah, well, I mean, you think about it, I mean, gaps between rich and poor, uh, corrupt regimes, governments going a little bit off off the rails. I mean, nowhere near as bad as as they were then in in El Salvador in 1980. Mm -hmm. Not at this stage, anyway. We were thinking in the Institute a little bit about the concern around the SABC and the concerns around state control of media and limitations on freedom of, of media, though, as being as being things that we need to, as the church, be concerned about and maybe mm. speaking about. And I, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential that we maintain or at least reclaim a, a free, independent public media because... Yes, you see, whoever controls the media generally controls what people think. And I think that is what we are battling with at the moment in this country. Um, People are aware that things are wrong, uncertain, unhappy, unstable, but they don't seem to have the information that helps them to make clear and reasoned judgments. And so what often happens is that people are aware of the immediately wrong in their own community, in their own lives, and so they may, in a sense, act uh, in in very much kind of narrow, sort of almost, I don't want to say self-interested, but you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of limited interest way, whereas what they really need to do is to have the information that makes them aware so they make much better judgments on a broader political level, and exercise the rights they still have. Yeah, so that there's a real need to to have access to information, but also to a responsibility to, to educate ourselves and to be a responsible citizenship. Yep, that's right. I'm just thinking about various things you must have seen down at the festival. I know that there's always a, a whole r- array of amazing um, <coughs> exhibitions and performances what what of the things that you've been to or listened to or or engaged with in the last few days? What would you say were the highlights for you, Ant? Well, there have been a number of interesting ones. I mean, I'm not a great music person, although a number of friends of mine have seen some wonderful concerts. Uh, I, I saw the play called Ruth First, 117 Days. Mm-hmm. It's uh, produced by Fred Abr- Abrams and Marshall Mayer. And uh, that was a one-woman show about Ruth First during her time in detention in 1964. During the, you know, she was she was detained, and so they wanted information from her. They thought she had information on the underground and Ravoni and everything. So they basically detained her for 90 days, released her for 90 days, and then re-detained her the moment she stepped out of the the uh, the, the prison. Right. And this is her story told from within the, within the prison. That was brilliant. Very fine performance. Last night I saw another wonderful woman, one woman hander, um, called Blonde Poison, which uh, is with uh, Fiona Ramsey as a Jewish woman in Nazi Germany mm-hmm. who collaborated with the Nazis in order to survive. Mm-hmm. It raises all kinds of fascinating moral questions about what do you do to survive? What would you do to survive? And at one point, she sort of shouts at the audience, 
you know, what do you think? What do you? What would you do to survive? Uh, and it's very, it's really very thought provoking because, in a sense, it's 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 positioned from the somebody who, in a sense, was on the bad side, mm-hmm. but and yet was also a victim. So it shows the sort of complex relationship between being a political victim in in a in a particular situation and at the same time uh, trying to survive and. Uh, coming almost to victimize her in the process. Right. Those two have been very, very impressive players, I must admit. Okay, that, those, those sound amazing. And they, yeah. it's always good to kind of stretch. I'm always reminded of that um, comment that we need to stretch our moral imagination. And it's in watching mm. things like this that we do stretch our moral ima- imagination in order to be able to think more clearly about our own situation. Mm. And sometimes not even to to just sort of sit there and say, you know, I have a moral problem and he has some questions. Sometimes just the sheer experience of something weird and different forces us to look at our whole imagination. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting presentation called Le Sensei, which is based upon an Antonin Artaud play, which was very, very strange, very disturbing. And everybody came out of it going, what the hell was all that about? <laughs> and essentially what it does is ask us to look at how we see madness. Right. And it, it was very well done. It was a combination of performance, art, acting, music, movement, and even back, backward projection documentary film or pseudo-documentary filming. So real multimedia performance. Very interesting. Right. Well, that sounds. I mean, it sounds. It sounds extraordinary, actually. Mm. Mm. And have you have you been to any of the lectures or any of the um, uh, displays that are sometimes offered at the festival? Um, I haven't actually been to many of the lectures, but there have been some very good ones on, and certainly my sources tell me that uh, some of them have been particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been a number of shows that I wanted to see, but I just couldn't get to see. So, it's, you know, the problem with festival is so many things happening at the same time. If you were participating yourself in festival, as I have been, you know, you basically have to say one hour before, one hour after every everything you're doing basically has to be sort of cleared out. And I find quite often when I'm doing my one-man show, I need to actually a few more hours just to get myself psyched into the part because... You know, I, I think you know that I, I don't have a script. What I've done is I've taken Romero's life and his letters and everything else that we've got, and I've tried to sort of immerse myself in the character and then do it as a kind of spontaneous, uh, off-the-cuff interview. Yeah. So that takes a lot of time away. So I haven't been to as many things as I'd like to be. But nevertheless, you know, there's a lot of good things happening. Well, that sounds wonderful. Well, enjoy the rest of the festival. How many more performances you. do you have, Anthony? I have one performance tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And that's and at the Methodist Church. That's, that's, yeah, tomorrow, Friday. Uh, but I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm around until Sunday, so I'm going to be coming back on Sunday evening. Great, but if any the of the listeners are in Grahamstown or near Grahamstown, you want to see Father Anthony Egan performing Romero, then Friday at 3 o'clock at the Methodist Church. Wesleyan, no, Wesleyan Methodist Church. Wesleyan Methodist uh, Church? It's it's not far from the um, place called the Cock House. It's a famous uh, 
restaurant and hotel. Okay. Uh, it's it's on it's it's you know it's on the edge of town, but if you look at the uh, the book, the actual book, which is in Spirit Fest at the very back of the of of the festival book, you'll find some very interesting. You'll, you'll find out where it is. Okay, so it's in the in the okay, book then. at Spirit Fest. Thank you, Anthony. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you very much, Francis. Okay. So you bye. bye. We have been listening to Father Anthony Egan from the Jesuit Institute, who's gone down to be part of the Fringe and the Spirit Fest at the Grahamstown Festival, and who's doing a performance based one man play based around the life of Bishop Oscar Romero. Now we're going to listen to some music, and we're going to listen to Bread for the World by Bernadette Farrell. Christ, you call us to your feast, at which
So you're back with the Jesuit Institute Hour with me, Francis Correa. And we're going to be listening now to an interview I did a couple of days ago with Father John Baldwin, who is out from the United States. He's out here doing a course called Winter Living Theology, which is being run in various centers around the country. He's going on a massive trip all over the country. And he'll be talking in this about the relationship between liturgy, particularly the liturgy of the sacraments, and social justice and how everything in the church is, is really woven together, how the church's social teaching is shot through through the words and the symbols of the liturgy. And so we're going to move to that interview now. Father Baldwin, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Welcome to South Africa. Thank you. And I understand you're coming back to South Africa, that you've been here before. Yes, I was here 18 years ago teaching at St. John Vianney Seminary in Pretoria. Wow. For about six months. Oh, that's amazing. So welcome back. And Thank you. Unfortunately, you're here during our winter, not the summer. Yes, last time I was able to experience uh, winter, spring, and summer, a little <laughs> bit of summer anyway. And so this time you're, you'll be here during winter, but you'll see all sorts of parts of the country. I that's know you're right. going to Cape Town, Bloemfontein, possibly Durban, although it's the election, so right. we'll see how we go. It's kind of the grand tour, as they used to say. <laughs> yes. So would you like to tell us a little bit about what it is that you're going to be doing here? I know you're here for Winter Living Theology, but just to talk about what it is that you're going to be talking about at Winter Living Theology this year. Sure. Uh, My basic field of study and teaching is uh, sacraments and liturgy. So uh, Father Pollard asked me to do something uh, around that subject and to to pick something uh, in particular. And uh, I've never really uh, given a course in... Uh, liturgy and justice, but my experience over the years has been that uh, in uh, dealing with uh, liturgy that I find so many people, uh, even among my own Jesuit confreres, uh, think that you're either in favor of liturgy or in favor of social justice. Uh And um, my own study of liturgy, my own understanding of liturgy, I think the church's understanding of liturgy, uh, really puts the two together. There's a a phrase that I'll be uh, repeating uh, during uh, some of the lectures uh, from a great uh, hero of mine, Father Robert Havda, who is a wonderful uh, liturgist and essayist, who once wrote a short essay entitled, What Do You Mean We Need More Peace Liturgies? Peace liturgies are the only kind we have. 
Wow. So okay. if I can, if by the end of the uh, three days of these uh, workshops of winter living theology, if I can get people to understand that better, I will have counted what I've done as a success. Uh, because because I think, if I may go on, yeah. I think that um, one of the real issues and challenges in the liturgical reform, uh, which has been uh, so positive in so many ways over the last uh, 50 years since uh, Vatican II, has been um, the, the fact that people don't really accept somehow, I think, instinctively, but don't explicitly understand the relationship between liturgy and life. As another uh, of my heroes, uh, the liturgical theologian Father Robert Taft likes to say, um, the liturgy, correctly understood, is Christian life in a nutshell. It's in a ritual form, but it is about the Christian life. And so if I can help people to understand that better, um, I'll be very happy. So there's a sense in what you're saying about, if I, I like that sense of the, the liturgy is the Christian life in a nutshell, that there is, there is something about the essence of what it is to be Christian that we're experiencing each time we go through the liturgy, and that that should propel us into thinking about and then acting in the world in a Christ-like way. Is right, that right? Exactly. The way I begin the uh, course is uh, to talk about what I call the tripod, Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually something, an idea I've taken from another theologian, uh, a French the- sacramental theologian named uh, Louis-Marie uh, Chauvet, uh, who's got some wonderful books. One, the easier book is called The Sacraments, and uh, the more difficult book is called Symbol and Sacrament, uh, 200 pages versus 555. Uh, but uh, Chauvet says in, in uh, both of the books that uh, Christian existence is is founded, has the foundation uh, on a tripod. And the tripod is scripture, sacrament, and ethics. And that just like a tripod has to have three legs that are of equal length, otherwise it'll tip over, um, all of these must be proportionate in the Christian life. So it's what we believe translated into how we worship which he shows, I think I should go into this at great length here, but which he shows, and I'll try to to explain a little bit, um, has to be the middle point, the passage point between uh, the truth of what we believe and what we do and how we put it into action. Uh, but all three are needed, both, uh, and uh, it's it's like for me, it's like the classic Greek triad of the good life: truth, beauty, and goodness. Truth, the scriptures, beauty, if you will, uh, the liturgy. Our sacramental life, the liturgy, worship, and uh, goodness, uh, the ethical life. Right. So there's there's a real sense there of liturgy having, um, as you speak, that the sense of it being an essential part of life, but also really a motivating part of life. If I if I think about my own experience as someone who who participates in liturgy. I'm aware of how the words or the experience, the symbols speak to me on a regular basis, how they remind me of the life I'm called to be living. Exactly. Right, right. And that's that's what I'm trying to make more explicit in the course. You see, there are two things that go on in liturgy. The Council, Vatican Council, and the Constitution on the uh, Sacred Liturgy actually uh, uh, summed it up very nicely. It called the liturgy, especially the Eucharist, uh, the source and the summit of Christian life. So it's both. It's always both. It's it's the fact that grace is, to quote another theologian, Karl Rahner, 
uh, grace is everywhere in the world. God mm-hmm. has created a graced world. It's not as though in the sacraments you have this pocket of grace, this little isolated pocket that's that's totally cut off from the world. I think that's the way sometimes a lot of people think about liturgy as something that is sacred as opposed to the world. No, that's not true in Christianity. God's grace is everywhere. And so in one way, the liturgy uh, encapsula- encapsulates or uh, uh, crystallizes yes. uh, crystallizes the Christian life that we're already li- living in the world of grace that, that God's poured out for us. Mm-hmm. And the, at the same time, however, it's it's not only the summit of that Christian life, it's also the source of it, and exactly the kind of thing that you were saying. It impels us uh, because of its celebration uh, for many, many different reasons. There are a lot of factors there, but it impels us to live the Christian life. So it's both uh, summit and source. Right. So there's there's something I noticed just as I was glancing at this that um, the I was glancing at the list of topics you were going to be talking about, and one of them caught my eye straight away. I think it's because I'm married. <laughs> you were talking about marriage and social justice, and right. and I kind of found myself thinking, oops, that's interesting because I hadn't thought about that particularly before. Right. Um, and that is, I mean, you're talking about the sacraments, the different sacraments, baptism and social justice. The mass and social justice. I can, I can see elements of social justice as I listen, for instance, each week in the mass. I see it less clearly. And, you know, I'm a mother. I have three children. I'm about to go and be a godmother again at the end of this week to one of my nieces. Um, so baptisms, marriage. Can you just tease out for me a little bit how you would see the links between social justice and, and some of those activities? Those sacraments that I see as being much more, for me, have always been much more about the the life of faith in the family. Right, right. Well, um, the family is a perfect uh, home for social justice. Uh, there are a couple of things that occur to me, and that I'll be trying to uh, spell out in the in that particular presentation. One is um, there's a beautiful blessing in the first version of the rite of ma- marriage, and you can find it. Uh, even in the Missal, the, the rite of marriage in English is about to come out, I think, uh, the, the new translation within a couple of months, September in the U.S., I believe. Um, but there's a beautiful blessing at the end of the Mass, not the nuptial blessing, the main blessing, but the, the threefold blessing, solemn blessing, you sometimes have it at the end of Mass. And it says something like this. I don't have the text right in front of me. Um, but it says, May your home be a welcome place for the poor, so that they may ent- uh, welcome you into the kingdom of heaven, so mm. somewhat like the idea of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems to me that that's a way of saying that married life is not just about what we call the nuclear family. Married life is a vocation, right? The, the catechism uh, has three categories of sacraments. First, the sacraments of initiation. Second, the sacraments of healing, penance, and anointing. And third, sacraments in service of the church's communion. I like that. I think that's a wonderful formulation that both orders or ordained ministry and marriage are sacraments of the church's in service of the church's communion. Then there's the other aspect too, and that is to say the, um, the, if you want the gender aspect, the relationship between men and women, uh, the necessity of the equality of women. Uh, and I think I want to try to talk about the, the way the liturgy should. Uh, maybe that's ideal or idealistic, uh, but that the way that the liturgy should promote that equality between men and women, mm-hmm. especially when it's culturally been so lacking. 
That, that's quite interesting. When we were when we were preparing to get married, my husband and I were kind of thinking about our liturgy, and and we read the South African Catholic bishops guide to marriage. And one of the things that really struck me was that there was a request in it for fathers not to accompany their daughters down the aisle because of the cultural implications. Yes, that's one of my examples. Yeah, I, I always counsel people. I, I actually, uh, I give up on the, on the actually fathers uh, accompanying their daughters down the aisle because I think it's uh, impossible to, to work, usually impossible to convince people of this. But, and I know I'm interrupting you. <laughs> no, it's fine. But, but I do, what I do think I can do, and, and usually they'll, they'll accept this, is, um, when the, the, they reach the head of the aisle, right, when reach the, the front of the church, mm. I ask them, uh, not to have the father give the bride, give his daughter to her new, I'm using scare quotes here, Owner, yeah. right? Which is the image. Yeah, uh, that's is, that's I mean, a medieval image, right? It's more than medieval. It's it's actually quite ancient. Um, not to give the the daughter, but for both sets of parents to come into the aisle and exchange greetings, and I, that's not lost on people. The, one of the last weddings I did, the I think the maid of honor turned to me and said, "That's very feminist." And I said, well, I hope so. Mm, and I think there's, I mean, there is something in that. We, I, I noticed we did something like that in our, in our, um, liturgy. We, we had, we walked in, my husband and I walked in together with our parents or with our moms. Yes. And that's, a, that's one of the ways. And that's that, one of, and that was kind of, that was for us quite symbolic that we were right. choosing. And once we, you know, once you kind of spelt out, it's the couple who chooses to marry each other. It's not right. someone else choosing to marry them right. to each other. Not in our society. In not in case. our society in yeah. any case. And, yeah. and that, that was quite significant. And, and I mean, in, in our society, the, in our culture, there are all sorts of, um, depending on which culture you're from, but there, there are all sorts of things that still harken back to an idea of brides being sold and bride prices being pray, paid and, and right. all that says about the yeah. relationship of women to men in marriage. So, right. yeah, there's These are the kinds of, of questions I want to raise in uh, people's minds. Of course, I'm, I'm intensely aware of the fact that coming here uh, to South Africa that I am a cultural stranger, uh, that I know so little, even though I had some experience 18 years ago of your country, uh, that I'm, uh, I'm not here to preach uh, culture to, to people, to tell them what their culture is, but to try to, to establish some good basic Christian principles, talk about the, my experience from my own culture and help people to uh, talk about adapting them. So a real part of the, the course is going to be to ask people to apply it themselves in to discussion and then, and then have general discussions uh, because I can't, I can't tell you your politics or your <laughs> culture. Or, uh, you know, I can't come and, and pronounce on these things that I don't know much about. That makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But Which, of course, doesn't prevent some of our American politicians from doing those kinds of things. But uh. Well, you know, they're politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of struck by that. Perhaps if we could pick up just for a moment baptism. Sure. You were talking about links between baptism and social justice. Right. Um, my, prime, my prime example for that is at the end of my presentation, I show a clip, and it's worth the entire presentation, it seems to me. I show a clip from the film Romero about yes. the uh, the assassination, or I would say martyrdom, 
because he's now been made a blessed, the martyrdom of Archbishop uh, Romero of San Salvador. Um, this woman who had been, he had been very, very friendly with the upper class uh, early in his life, and he got converted uh, to service of the poor by the death of a Jesuit friend of his father, Rutilio Grande, who was murdered uh, you know, by the military forces, uh, the oligarchy. And um, so his friends got very upset uh, that he was turning on them. You know, they, they were happy that he'd been made Archbishop of San Salvador because they thought they had someone in their pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, and the woman comes to him and she says, uh, I think I'd like, I'd like you to, uh, it's time to baptize my baby. And uh, he says, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. He says, you know, I'd love to do it. I'm so happy to do it. We have baptisms uh, down at the uh, Metropolitana, the, what they call the cathedral in uh, San Salvador on uh, Sunday afternoons. So that'll be wonderful. We can, let's, let's talk about picking a date. She said, well, I was thinking December. He said, oh, that's great. That's a lovely time. There aren't too many then. That's, that'll be nice. And she said, no, we were thinking of having a private baptism. And he looks at her and, uh, he doesn't say anything at that point. Uh, he says, uh, oh, bud, we have so many. Uh, no, it'll have to be with them. And she looks at him, and this is the key, uh, I think, my, my point. And she says, you expect me to have my baby baptized with those Indians? Mm -hmm. You've betrayed us. And that's the end of the scene. It's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a very powerful scene, it seems to me. And if you understand that, you understand a lot about what baptism means for the Christian life, uh, the, the fundamental equality of, uh, of the baptized, uh, which is so important, I think, in which we often let uh, you know, our ordained ministry, or other kinds of differences in the church, uh, cloud over. Uh, not to say that those aren't important. They are, of course, and they're necessary for the church, but they're not the most important thing. Right? Um, so is there something about that fundamental, basic dignity of baptism that is conferred on all the right. baptized? And once you talk about that baptism, that dignity, then you're, then you're opening the door to social justice and recognizing the dignity of every human being. Yeah. So um, that'll be an element of what I do. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking to us thank this you. morning. Thank you. My pleasure, Francis. Thanks. So we've been listening to an interview between myself and Father John Baldovan, who is out in the country doing Winter Living Theology. And he'll be talking more at Winter Living Theology about the relationship of the sacraments, the liturgy with social justice. Just this weekend, he'll be in Pretoria, at Queenswood on the 9th from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. and in Johannesburg, open lectures that you can just come to on the 12th of July at St. John Bosco Catholic Church at 6.30 p.m. in the evening. But he'll also be in Port Elizabeth, in Cape Town, in Durban, in Bloemfontein. And then, of course, there'll be the three-day workshops that will be offered in Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth, Cape Town, Durban, Bloemfontein. And for those, you do need to pre-book and if you want to find out more about them, please email the Jesuit Institute, admin at jesuitinstitute.org.za, or you can phone in 011-482-4237, or you can phone Veritas, and they will no doubt give you our contact details. 
So now you're listening to me, Francis Correa, on the Jesuit Institute Hour here at Radio Veritas. If you want to call in, the studio line number is 011-452-7115, or you can SMS us at 41809. We're going to move to some promos and some uh, music now, and then we'll be back for the final elements of the show. Finance is a very sensitive and at times a complicated topic. I'm Lisecha Madiba, your Radio Veritas resident financial wellness coach from Citadel. You can find us at citadel.co.za. Join me every Friday on Changing Gear at 5 o'clock as we unpack finance and help you to get financially well. That's finance every Friday at 5 o'clock with Lisecha Madiba. Prayer is powerful beyond limits. When we turn to the Immaculata, who is queen, even of God's heart, said St. Maximilian Kolbe. Radio Veritas, together with the multi-talented musical group, The Gifted Folks, bring you a concert in celebrating the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Come and join us as we praise in song on the 20th of August, at the Cathedral of Christ the King in Berea, Johannesburg, at 2 p.m., 
The cost is 100 rand for adults and 50 rand for children under the age of 16. For more information, contact Mahadi Butelezi on 011-663-4700 or 083-992-0387. Blessed are you who stand beside us as we enter new ventures, for our failures will be outweighed by the times we surprise ourselves and you. Blessed are those who forget my disability of the body and see the shape of my soul and strength of my mind. Blessed are those who love me just as I am without wondering what I might have been like. The Muscular Dystrophy Foundation. Your support means hope. You can contact us on www.mdsa.org.za or telephone number 011-472-9703 for further information. My name is Mike Mahoney and I'm inviting you to join me every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock for one hour as together we experience what it means to be living the Scriptures. Look forward to having you join me. God bless you. Hello everyone, this is Bishop Kevin Dowling from Rustenburg and you are listening to Radio Veritas. I'm a listener. I've also participated many times with interviews and so forth. It's always been a wonderful gift and privilege to talk to you and to share my journey and experiences. So I wish you every blessing in life as you listen to Radio Veritas and be touched by good news. You're on Radio Veritas, listening to the Jesuit Institute Hour. And we've been thinking this morning about a number of things. Father John Bordovan, we were thinking through these ideas around um, how our liturgy, how what we what we do when we celebrate the sacraments, what we do when we go to Mass, really impacts our sense of who we are as citizens, as people of the world, that there should be congruence between our life and liturgy. And I, I love that image Father Bordovan gave of of there being kind of three elements to our lives. And, and one of those elements is, is really liturgy. One is justice. One is our lived experience. So there is something here about what is God's invitation to us? What is God's ongoing invitation? And I was thinking about in the exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, there is a an exercise that's given to people early on, where they're asked to ask themselves three questions. And they're kind of, they're three questions and they're they're set in a very particular uh, context. We're asked to ask ourselves these three questions, standing at the foot of the cross, gazing at Christ. So there's a sense that the context is that I, I place myself at the foot of the cross and I gaze at Christ. And then I ask myself, what have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? And what will I do for Christ? What's going on in these kinds of questions? What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? And it seems to me that, that this kind of stance, the stance of looking at Christ, looking at God, who in the Passion we have the, the culmination of God's love for us, God's desire for us, made visible, made manifest. God so loved the world that he gave the only son, and Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself completely and without reserve on the cross. There is the sense of the absolute, 
unconditional nature of God's love, the 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 willingness of Jesus to to suffer for us, to give his life for us, to spend himself for us. And it's in that context of God who loves us so completely, so unconditionally, that then we are asking ourselves these questions. What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? And I think there's something about how we orientate our life, how I think about who I am, what I do, how I live, that is really, really important in this context. How, how am I living right at the moment? If I think about my life just today, you know, in my case, I, I think about my family, I think about my children, I think about my extended family, I think about my community, I think about the people I meet on the street, I think about the people whose lives I touch, I think about my society, I think about what is the nature of the society I live in, well, what might Christ need me to be doing in that society, what is, what is the unique gift that God desires of me, that God desires that I be doing? How am I called to make the world a better place? How am I called to work for Christ? Hmm? There's a real challenge in that. There's a real challenge in who I am and what I do and how I do it. And when we look around at the moment, we can see all sorts of different kinds of people being held up as heroes of our age, you know, and some of them can be seen as really maybe having something to offer for us. You know, I think about, I think about growing up in a, in South Africa in a time when there were people like Archbishop Tutu to look up to, or people like um, Nelson Mandela, people whose lives seem to speak of concern and care for others. But we can look around at the moment and we can see other people, other kinds of, of ways of living being offered. You know, we think about what happened yesterday with Oscar Pistorius. There's someone who's been, for, at certain times in his life, for many people, a hero. And, and what kind of hero is he? Is he someone that we want to aspire to be like? Is he someone who we feel, oh, that's someone who lives for Christ? We look in the world today and we, we see people like Trump and what he's saying. And do his messages speak of peace? Do they speak of justice? Do they speak of reconciliation? Or is something else going on there? We think about our own politicians, about things going on, for instance, at the SABC. What's going on there? Are those people living for Christ? Am I living for Christ? What would Christ ask of me in this situation? And perhaps that's the most important question. You know, I might have certain political views and you might have different ones. But for yourself, whatever those views are, are they congruent with what Christ would want? If you go back to the scriptures, if you sit with the scriptures... Are those views congruent with Jesus of Nazareth? What would Jesus want? How would I want to live my life for Christ? And so that's really the challenge, I think, that we're, we're sitting with today. 
the challenge of how do I live my life more radically for Christ. And, and it may be that for some of us, there's a call to do that in the public spaces. For others of us, it may be that that call is much more in the private space. I am aware that every time I ask myself that question, what am I doing for Christ? The image that actually comes to my mind is the image of my small children. And the question is always the question of, am I being a good enough mother? Am I really being there for them? Am I meeting their needs? Not just their needs of food and clothing and bedtimes, and, but their emotional needs, their needs for me to be present. For me, that's an, a perpetual challenge, a perpetual challenge to, to really be present. I think about the elderly members of my family. I think about, um, you know, the time when my grandmother was dying. And then at that time there was that question, am I there for her? And she had Alzheimer's, and I can remember she didn't know who I was. And yet there was that, that call from Christ, I think, to be present to her. Even though she couldn't be present to me, I could be present to her. And sometimes I managed that, and sometimes I didn't manage that. But that challenge from God always to, to, to being there, to being present. There is the person who, you know, I drive past every day on my way to work, the same person, I know him, standing at the side of the road every day. And the challenge to be present to him, and how can I be present to him? And, you know, to be in relationship with this person. He's not just something on the road he is a person and just because he is in need just because he is vulnerable there is something about him that speaks to my heart that you know in the words of mother teresa he too should be jesus to me and i think there's something in that who is jesus to me when i ask myself what am i doing for christ i need to also ask who is christ to me who is Christ to me? Can I see Christ in the people around me, in the people I know, but also in the people I don't know? Can I see Christ in the vulnerable, in the marginalized? That, for me, is the challenge. And so there's that real sense of being called to, to living Christian lives that are radical, that are merciful, that are compassionate, that are passionate. When we look at what Pope Francis is saying at the moment, is challenging us to do, I think there's a real sense that he is calling us to be passionately engaged in the world, to be passionately engaged in the people we meet. And so that, I think, for me, is the challenge as we come to the end of today's show, is how are you responding to that challenge? What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? And what will I do for Christ? How are you responding in your own heart? And so I invite you as we come to the end of today's show to just listen to the music as we play out and to let those questions reverberate in your being as you listen to this music and to see what does God say to you? What does the Holy Spirit inspire in your heart? What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ?
so we come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to me, Francis Correa, on the Jesuit Institute Hour. I want to thank you for your time, for listening to us. Thank Kenny for working on the desk with me. And as we end, to pray with me for us and for the whole of the country, for the world, we ask that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen.